Well, good evening and uh, welcome to this, the first annual public lecture of LSE's Law and Communications Research Network. I'm Nick Caudry and I'm the head of LSE's Department of Media and Communications and I'll be chairing the event. We set up the Law and Communications Research Network nearly a year ago to bring together researchers interested in the collaborative work that critical legal scholars and critical communication scholars could do together in addressing today's fast-changing communication and information environments and their implications, not just for power, but for the quality of human life, for political freedom and for justice. And this is the first of an annual series of public lectures that, alongside our regular seminars and smaller events, will focus our shared interests in a larger, more public forum. And we could not have a more appropriate speaker for this first public event of the network than Professor Julie Cohen, who is Professor of Law at Georgetown University Law Center in Washington, D.C., and Director there, Co-Director of the Center for Privacy and Technology. Professor Cohen has, for many years, been one of the leading critical commentators on the implications for freedom and human autonomy of our dependence on a fast-growing digital infrastructure that collects and disseminates vast quantities of information, including, of course, information about each of us as individuals and what we do from moment to moment. To mention just two highlights... Her 2000 article, Examined Lives, in the Stanford Law Review, challenged conceptions of data privacy that are formulated only in terms of property rights and instead offered a broader account of how protecting individuals' privacy in relation to data is important to protecting human dignity in a more fundamental sense. Already then, in 2000, and I stress this was way ahead of almost everyone else, perhaps everyone else. She was focusing on how to build normative frameworks that could help us challenge the growth of the data processing industries. And then in 2012, Julie Cohen published Configuring the Network Self, Yale University Press, a remarkable book for many reasons, for the breadth of literature on which it builds, in, from economic history to philosophy to, to communications research and cultural theory and also remarkable for identifying a push towards not just the commodification of information, we all know that, but towards a culture in which individuals are exposed to each other and to infrastructural forces in completely new ways, a relationship that is increasingly both opaque and authoritarian. That's Julie Cohen's word, not mine. Authoritarian. No one, I believe, has identified more sharply than Julie Cohen what she called in that book, quotes, the gap between the rhetoric of liberty and the reality of diminished individual control in the, in the digital age. No one has drawn more forcefully to our attention the paradox of liberalism in contemporary societies, identified, in fact, already by social theorist Klaus Offer a quarter of a century ago, that, quotes, the more, the, option, the more options we make available to ourselves, the less optional is the institutional framework with whose help we make them available. 
Not surprisingly, Julie Cohen's work has had a great impact both amongst legal researchers and amongst media and communications researchers. And tonight we have the privilege of hearing Julie Cohen talk about her latest work. She'll speak for around 40 to 45 minutes. Then we'll directly afterwards have a response for 10 to 15 minutes from Professor Anne Barron of LSE's Law Department, herself a prolific writer on legal theory, political economy, and copyright law. And then we'll have time, hopefully plenty of time, for questions and answers. Please join me in welcoming Professor Julie Cohen to talk about Code and Law Between Truth and Power. Thank you. Thank you, Nick, and thank you all for being here. So um, this lecture takes its title from a, a book that I'm at the very beginnings of, which in turn takes its title from a pamphlet published in 1955 by the American Friends Service Committee titled Speak Truth to Power, a Quaker search for an alternative to violence. Uh, and it was authored by a group of people in opposition to the Cold War, but it wasn't simply a protest polemic. Uh, instead, they focused on what an economist might call the opportunity cost of militarization and on the institutional path dependencies inherent in what would come to be known as the military-industrial complex. And in particular, they argued that resources devoted to the production and strategic deployment of weapons were resources that could not be devoted to serving human needs, and that institutional and policy commitments to militarization would entrench profoundly undesirable patterns of economic, political, and social development. So fast forward 70 years, and some things have not changed. Speaking truth to power requires addressing both the brute fact of state power and the relationship between power and political economy. Power resides in the state, but not only in the state. Private control of resources also has profound consequences for the choice between domination and flourishing, and private control of resources often is bound up with private influence over institutions. Other things have changed quite a bit. Uh, in the networked information era, speaking, whether about power or about human well-being or anything else, has become a much more complicated business. The Internet has been hailed as the ultimate medium for speaking truth to power, but the reality is a little different. Code can become a means for resisting domination, for example, by routing around censorship or encrypting communications. But the design of networked information technologies within business models also reflects and reproduces emerging relationships organized around economic and political power. Through its capacities to channel and authorize information flows, code can multiply and conceal power and can privatize, fragment, and manipulate truth. So in the emerging information society, speaking truth to power requires reckoning with the problem of control over information flows. More particularly, it requires reckoning with the profound economic and socio-technical transformations that have accompanied the rise of global informational capitalism. Information and information technologies are important tools for self-determination and self-expression, but they are also tools for economic production and surplus extraction. So one part of the story I'm about to tell tonight involves power mobilizing code in the service of control of information as expression, as property, and as knowledge. And that shouldn't surprise us. The code is highly generative and extraordinarily plastic, and those qualities afford points of entry for power. But the other part of the story that I'm about to tell involves power mobilizing law. 
we tend to think of law uh, as a neutral observer or bystander in legal contests for control over information flows and network protocols. But the law, too, is contested, and the law, too, affords points of entry for the exercise of power. Struggles to shape the patterns of information flow are seeking out new modes of recognition and accommodation within legal systems, and those struggles are beginning to produce new institutional settlements of their own. So I want to begin by drawing your attention to two general strategies, two ways that power has been mobilizing code on its behalf. The first and the more obvious one is power as interdiction, so the power to intercept and block particular kinds of information from flowing through the network. Toward that end, the past two decades have seen the emergence of architectures of control characterized by technical and operational protocols designed to shift control of information flows into the hands of state and private gatekeepers. <coughs> when architectures of control are in place, authorized information flows and, authorized informa- and unauthorized information does not flow. One impetus, obviously, for the emergence of architectures of control has been efforts by totalitarian societies to restrict Internet access and Internet freedom. And both Internet culture and Western political uh, traditions boast deep reserves of hostility to censorship and and have resisted this to some extent. Yet in the developed countries of the global north, a facial hostility to censorship has been paired with ever-increasing receptiveness to interdiction on the part of global entertainment and information businesses. And in the post-9-11 world, what we then see next is that many of the strategies employed by totalitarian states and by Hollywood moguls have become templates for broader broader control of information flows. So just to take one example, consider the response of the U.S. government to the WikiLeaks release of secret diplomatic cables. After news of the release was published, WikiLeaks suddenly found itself without (laughs) DNS and web hosting providers and without a way to process donations. And government officials denied that it was the, the, the result of official pressure, but industry observers who watched the developments closely concluded uh, exactly the opposite. So that's the first strategy, power as interdiction. The second strategy involves power as modulation, the power to modify and tailor information flows based on the behavior and attributes of particular subjects. Networked information and communications technologies increasingly are developed, configured, and implemented within business models as networked surveillance technologies. That statement might sound outlandish because in the popular imagination, surveillance, just like censorship, is linked with the idea of totalitarian political systems. That also is a little too simple. The Snowden leaks confirmed, uh, just to begin, uh, what many had long suspected, that Western nominally democratic governments, and particularly those of the U.S. and the U.K., also engage in pervasive surveillance and data mining. But they also confirmed something much less commonly acknowledged in public discourse about surveillance, that government and private sector data mining and data practices are symbiotic. Governments often do not collect data about citizens in the first instance. Private actors collect it for them. Communications companies, search providers, social networks, mobile application providers, gaming companies, brick-and-mortar retailers, data brokers, and many others are increasingly involved in constructing detailed consumer profiles and using powerful computing techniques to identify patterns within those profiles. Toward that end, providers of networked information services and devices have deliberately designed their offerings in ways that radically increase the degree to which our movements, communications, and transactions are monitored, cross-referenced, and authenticated. 
uh, and, and even to the extent of, of uh, automatically sensing many things we do. So the, the apparatus for surveillance is, is kind of literally disappearing into the background. Through those efforts, we're witnessing the emergence of a distinctly Western democratic type of surveillance society in which surveillance is conceptualized first and foremost as a matter of efficiency and convenience. Modulation takes advantage of the way that networked information technologies mediate our perceptual relationship to the world. So all artifacts mediate our perceptions to one degree or another. To take one small example, consider the contrast between an automobile club map a paper map, which some of you may no longer use ever, uh, and the step-by-step instructions given by a GPS-enabled mobile device. These two artifacts represent local geography in radically different ways. So when you use a map, you are forced to consider not only your desire to move from point A to point B, but also what occupies the space between them. When the navigator that you use is a GPS-enabled uh, mobile device, directions are supplied to you one easy step at a time, and through this process, the need to be aware in any detail of what occupies the space between point A and point B is just abstracted away. We tend to perceive the world through the lenses our artifacts create, and as we become accustomed to our artifacts, we take the lenses they create for granted. Left to our own devices, however, we also use our artifacts in lots of unpredictable ways. We incorporate networked information technologies into our everyday practice, into our ordinary rhythms and routines of everyday life, in lots of ways that are messy and heterogeneous and tactical, and our behavior is heavily influenced by serendipity. We go off on tangents, suggested by fortuitous and unpredictable encounters and juxtapositions random things that we come across uh, as we move through our daily lives. But as our relationship to networked information technologies has become more and more intimate, the processes of mediation have become correspondingly more comprehensive. Our perceptions of the world increasingly are mediated by search engines, social networking platforms, location-aware apps, and they are capable of responding in real time based on the information that they have about us. Modulation harnesses that capability in the service of powerfully instrumental logics. It operates, and it is intended to operate, in a path-narrowing sort of way, insulating individual consumers within personalized bubbles tailored to what the apps and the search engines and the social networking platforms know about their pre-existing beliefs and inclinations. As I've written elsewhere, its purpose is to produce tractable and predictable citizen consumers whose preferred modes of self-determination play out along predictable and profit-generating trajectories. It is a technique for extracting and appropriating surplus more precisely and more completely. Okay. At this point in a narrative like this, legal scholars are apt to ask, what should law do about these developments? How should law respond? That framing, though, positions law as an entity somehow separate and apart from the economic and socio-technical factors that are causing the mobilization of code. But law is one of the moving parts, too. It is already responding in ways that reflect power working in and through legal modalities to serve its own perceived needs. The key point I want to make here is that economic transformations and socio-technical transformations engender doctrinal and institutional ones. So historian Carl Polanyi wrote about a great transformation in Britain, a transition from agrarianism to industrialism that entailed the commodification of a set of important new resources, land, labor, and money, with all of the economic and socio-technical apparatus that came along with that transformation. 
the human suffering occasioned by the transformation by enclosure of land and industrialization was eventually alleviated by the development of new types of legal institutions, um, in particular legislation to regulate wages and working hours, but that reform had to be invented and there was a time lag before it was. The modern American legal system, to take another example, is to a great extent the product of another period of socio-technical and economic transformation, the rise of not only industrialization but of modern consumer capitalism. From the late 19th century through the mid-20th century, as accountability for industrial age harms became a pervasive source of conflict, the U.S. legal system underwent profound tectonic shifts. Reforms dating to that period include strict liability for defective products, the Uniform Commercial Code, and the modern regulatory state. Just a few small things. Uh, But those shifts were themselves shaped by earlier realignments that privileged rising industrial and commercial interests. So, for example, American legal historian Morton Horwitz has explored the ways in which the development of private and commercial law during both the antebellum period and the post-Civil War years established the distributive backdrop for the later disputes, the constitutional and regulatory disputes that we in the states know as the Lochner and New Deal eras. Today, as accountability for information age harms has become a pervasive source of conflict, different kinds of change are on the table. New claims about legal privilege and legally cognizable harm, new procedural devices such as graduated response mechanisms and takedown obligations for communication and payment intermediaries, new obligations relating to data protection, data security, and network management, new administrative procedures for defining and policing compliance with those obligations, new surveillance techniques and new debates about whether and how to constrain them, and new regulatory institutions such as trade treaties and industry standards bodies. Power has a stake in whether and how these institutional changes are made. And lawyers need to reckon with that. Lawyers tend to understand themselves um, in a very self-interested way as stewards of the principles and institutions that hold a society accountable to its citizens. But they also serve as agents for the powerful interests that seek to alter existing principles and institutions to their own advantage. So now I want to talk about two kinds of ways in which information power is making itself felt in and through law. Two ways. The first way that power is mobilizing law on its own behalf has to do with the content of legal entitlements. Here, legal discourse actually comes through in a pinch and supplies a way of talking about power that has great precision, which if you are from the communications theory side will come as a shock to you because usually law is very bad about talking about power when it doesn't come from the state. Uh, but, but here's an exception. So at the turn of the 20th century, in what became one of the foundational texts of the legal realism movement, American legal scholar Wesley Newcomb Hofeld wrote that if one wants to understand the ways that background legal rules shape private conduct, one cannot simply talk about rights. Instead, one must map a complex articulation of rights, privileges, powers, and immunities, and correlative duties, no rights, liabilities, and disabilities that supplies the framework for private economic activity. And that century-old analysis turns out to have fairly significant importance for us today. The power of informational capitalism is working to realign the distribution of rights, privileges, powers, and immunities, and correlative duties etc. 
in response to the asserted imperatives of the emerging information economy. So consider first intellectual property and more specifically copyright and related rights. The past two decades have witnessed a deep and seemingly permanent shift in the enforcement of rights in entertainment-related goods. 20 years ago, the principal modality of copyright enforcement was the infringement lawsuit, supplemented in particularly egregious cases by the criminal infringement prosecution. (coughs) Copyright infringement efforts increasingly have transformed into efforts to rearrange information flows within circuits of authorization defined by our architectures of control and or physical borders, and to render unauthorized flows subject to interdiction. Those efforts are reinforced by anti-hacking laws that carry draconian sentences. In terms of the Hofeldian taxonomy that I just mentioned, we might understand these developments as telling a fairly simple story about the importance of intellectual property rights and of correlative duties to accommodate them. And that's the story that the entertainment industries tell to legislatures and courts. But the shift goes deeper than that. Rights holders have gained considerable power to dictate the configuration of the network, and that power entails a correlative liability for other network participants, including many whose activities affect infringement only indirectly. In the realm of privacy and data protection, a different process of realignment is underway. As I noted earlier, commercial surveillance practices function within the emerging system of informational capitalism as tools for surplus extraction. That process requires an enabling legal construct, and particularly to those versed in the legal language of privacy and data protection, that construct may come as a bit of a surprise. Uh, To those folks, it might appear that the legal construct enabling the ongoing construction of the the censor society, of this network of, of collection of information, still remains the underlying right to control the processing of personal data and the data subject's consequent consent to collection and processing. But that would be wrong. Although formally, much commercial surveillance requires enrollment, Uh, apps must be installed and enabled for location awareness and social sharing and so on, as a practical matter, information businesses have powerful incentives to configure the networked world in ways that make unfettered collection the default condition. And under those circumstances, the lawyerly emphasis on consent becomes a form of kabuki theater that distracts both users and regulators from what is really going on. The presumptively raw material extracted from crowds plays an increasingly important role as raw material in the political economy of informational capitalism. Personal information processing has become the newest form of bioprospecting as entities of all sizes compete to discover new patterns and extract their marketplace value. Contemporary practices of personal information processing constitute a new type of public domain, um, which I will call the biopolitical public domain, a source of raw materials that are there for the taking and that are understood as supporting particular types of productive economic activity. The idea of a public domain of personal information supports the reorganization of socio-technical activity in ways directed towards surplus extraction and appropriation via devices for the emerging biopolitical economy of information capitalism. It also creates the backdrop for culturally situated techniques of knowledge production and designates those techniques as sites of legal privilege. The the raw material, in other words, for the emerging biopolitical economy of informational capitalism is us. Commercial surveillance devices are devices for the statistical management and control of populations. 
In terms of our Hofeldian taxonomy, again, this is a redistribution of legal privilege with correlative disentitlement to decline one's participation. It institutionalizes a background condition in which we are always already alienated from our own information, and so from its uses to define the contours of markets and the structure of our information environment. The construct of a public domain of personal information legitimates this pattern of appropriation and obscures the distributive politics in which it is embedded. The ongoing construction of the biopolitical public domain is hastened by a concerted effort to shift the tenor of public regulatory and policy discourses about privacy and data processing. Contemporary networked surveillance practices are designed to elicit and valorize multiple forms of participation, many of which turn out, in fact, to be highly organized and strategic. Often commercial interests (coughs) use techniques of so-called gamification to motivate user participation. And legal strategies for open access, open innovation, and open data also have emerged as important drivers of the participatory turn in surveillance. These rhetorics of openness and participation frame surveillance as voluntary, virtuous, and generative. Concurrently, members of the data processing industries have worked to position privacy and innovation as opposites and intractably opposed, and to align unfettered data processing with the exercise of economic and expressive liberty. These rhetorics of participation and innovation represent deliberate, politically opportunistic interventions in the governance of surveillance and data processing. Through them, a new discursive formulation is em- formation is emerging, a surveillance innovation complex that alters and is intended to alter the extent to which we understand surveillance as itself subject to regulation. It fortifies appropriative privileges, privileges with the power to engage in relatively unfettered data processing and correlatively disables regulators from responding. Yet another realignment concerns accountability for structural conditions that increase the likelihood of information-related harms. Consider the rising incidence and severity of identity theft. So in one of the most famous passages in Shakespeare's Othello, the schemer Iago says, who steals my purse steals nothing, tis something, nothing, t'was mine, tis his, and has been slave to thousands, but he that filches from me my good name robs me of that which not enriches him and makes me poor indeed. Well, that was then. Today, the distinction between one's purse and one's good name does not exist. One's good name or credit and one's purse are inextricably entwined, and to steal a good name is a source of immense enrichment. The combination of data reservoirs and poor data security practices makes identity theft easier, exposing people to enormous risk. And meanwhile, new kinds of pseudonymous social interaction enabled by online architectures have led to an upsurge of defamation and, more troublingly, to harassment that replicates traditional hierarchies of privilege based on gender, race, and sexual orientation. One might imagine, in an alternate universe, new legal regimes for accountability designed to respond to these trends, yet powerful information businesses have sought and won legal immunity from liability for defamation and harassment and have resisted the imposition of liability for the new threats posed by their large, insecure data reservoirs. In Hofeldian terms, these are immunity rights. The de jure immunity of powerful information businesses and the de facto immunity of aggressive and technically sophisticated individuals and groups engenders a correlative disability on the part of ordinary people, magnifying their vulnerability to harm and rendering their own efforts at self-protection almost comically toothless. So I could go on about Hofeld. There are other examples to raise, but I want to talk now about the second way that Silicon Valley technoculture and power 
are mobilizing law uh, to their own advantage, and that has to do with institutional configuration and the structure and function of legal institutions. Powerful and well-resourced repeat players in legal, regulatory, and policy proceedings are configuring law and governance in their own image. And I want to talk about four different examples, although I'm now looking at the clock, given what happened, but we'll see. Uh, so, So one question confronting law in the era of informational capitalism concerns how to recognize and vindicate individual claims of information based harm. In America, that means litigation, right? I think we do that more than you do. But, but in the U.S., consumer privacy lawsuits are on the rise, and in those lawsuits, two interesting kinds of things are happening. By far the more common is that privacy claims are dismissed for lack of cognizable harm. And this, interestingly, is similar to the way that claims against product manufacturers for injuries caused by their defective products were dismissed before effective theories of products liability were developed. This time, though, I think the problems may be more difficult. In the case of products liability, the harm was clear and the problems to be solved were doctrinal, how to make liability run to distant third parties absent privity of contract. In the case of privacy, we have not even agreed on how to name the harm. And interestingly, this is so even within the European discourse on human rights and data protection, which does recognize privacy as a distinct good and inextricably linked to human dignity, uh, precisely because that discourse often seems to assume that the harms of privacy invasion are self-evident and therefore need not be specified. And this becomes a problem, especially when privacy exists in tension with other freedoms that are more concretely specified, such as security, intellectual property, or freedom of expression. The relative murkiness of the privacy entitlement creates fertile conditions for marginalizing privacy claims and interests. A second interesting aspect of U.S. consumer privacy litigation concerns the availability of the class action device, which emerged in its current form as a way of managing large numbers of claims regarding industrial-scale injuries. Courts seem to think that that device simply does not work well in information-era contexts because the claims do not present the requisite commonality. If it is to be useful at all for vindicating claims about information-era harms, the class device may require some reimagining. And just for purposes of comparison, the judicial system initially has supported considerable procedural innovation directed toward allowing copyright owners to file suit against large groups of individual defendants, although reasonably, recently they do appear to be reining that in a bit. And they have been extremely receptive to joinder of infringement claims by large groups of copyright industry plaintiffs. So what we might call the problem of numerosity is eliciting different responses depending on how numerosity maps to underlying distributions of entitlements and to underlying distributions of power. So second example, um, the relationship between informational capitalism and the regulatory state is up for grabs. Particularly in the U.S., many information processing activities escape the jurisdictional boundaries of the existing administrative framework, which were drawn with industrial-era harms in mind. That kind of functional obsolescence is less of a problem for the European Commission, whose divisions were established more recently, but the European Union, as I'm sure you know, has plenty of other structural problems to confront. More fundamentally, though, we are accustomed to setting regulatory mandates that define fixed targets for private sector activities, for example, ceilings for particulate emissions from factories, or that define impermissible results in terms of concepts like market power, discrimination, and deception. In the interlinked market 
circuits constituted by contemporary information processing practices, concepts in that latter group turn out to be extraordinarily difficult to assess, and fixed targets do not readily suggest themselves. And we are relatively less accustomed to framing regulatory mandates in terms of permissible methods, whether those methods relate to policing or to credit scoring. On a more abstract level, many of these problems concern how to translate core principles of legality into highly technical domains that operate according to very different cybernetic principles. How are generalist judges and legislators to conduct effective review of practices conducted via artificial intelligence processes whose operations are imminent and inherently non-transparent, such that even the data analysts may not be able to describe them with any precision in advance? We will need to consider how core norms of predictability, fairness, and reviewability might translate into such a world. And perhaps then it is unsurprising that the regulatory problems of the information economy have challenged settled ways of thinking about the appropriate modalities of administrative lawmaking. We just don't understand how to implement meaningful constraints on information processing activities via ex-ante rulemaking, but alternatives involving public-private partnerships and standard setting and compliance auditing have raised persistent concerns about capture, as well they should. It is no coincidence, I think, that the most intractable difficulties relating to regulatory method have occurred in the most information-intensive areas, privacy, telecommunications, and finance. Third example. Concurrently with these existential challenges to the form and substance of state-centered regulation, we are witnessing the emergence of network non-state legal institutions with extraordinary authority over broad sectors of information law and policy. Consider, in particular, technical standards bodies such as the International Telecommunications Union and the Internet Corporation for Assigned Names and Numbers. And consider also trade-related institutions such as the World Trade Organization and the emerging network of multilateral and regional free trade agreements. These entities have greater and greater de facto authority over a wide range of information-related issues. And for some time now, a debate has been underway among legal scholars about the legitimacy of transnational regulatory processes that increasingly seem to operate according to their own rules and largely free of external constraint. It's useful to juxtapose that debate with Manuel Castell's account of network communications power, because that's what we're seeing. The new transnational processes follow network laws, and that explains a great deal about their unresponsiveness to traditional modalities of state and international control. Borrowing from the old chestnut about the internet and censorship, we might say that power interprets regulation as damage and routes around it. Network power is constituting the new regulatory bodies to serve its own needs. Technical standards bodies and trade bodies operate in ways that are largely unconstrained by constitutional and human rights protections. Technical standards bodies were constrained to some extent by the generally libertarian leanings of their membership, but have come increasingly under the sway of corporate and national interests. And trade bodies are metastasizing into fully-fledged governance entities organized around principles of corporate sovereignty and secrecy, and to which conceptions of human rights are foreign. Fourth example, and last, at the same time that the new networked governance institutions are becoming more powerful, traditional human rights institutions are utterly failing to cope with this phenomenon, the, the rise of the networked information society. 
The understanding of human rights that animates existing treaties, institutions, and constitutions is fundamentally territorial and state-centered, and those characteristics make it relatively ill-suited to counterbalancing the rise of networked information power. Among the lessons learned from the Snowden leaks is that some governments, notably the U.S. and British, and please don't pull the fire alarm again, uh, but also apparently the Germans, have, in the words of a recent U.N. report, operated a transnational network of intelligence agencies through interlocking legal loopholes involving the coordination of surveillance practice to outflank the protections provided by domestic legal regimes, end quote. So, for example, these governments systematically have intercepted network traffic that passes through internet nodes outside their own borders, thereby moving outside the reach of the procedural protections established by laws regulating internal domestic surveillance, and then they've shared that information with one another. In addition, private collection of data for commercial surveillance purposes enables state and private actors to play a mutually beneficial game of regulatory arbitrage. The national security surveillance apparatus benefits enormously from the ways in which the surveillance innovation complex is shifting the public discourse around surveillance. And meanwhile, Internet companies harness public outrage at mass government surveillance to their own benefit. While some private actors, including most notably Apple, have introduced protocols to encrypt certain kinds of network traffic, they have not pledged to abandon their own surveillance activities, nor even acknowledge the extent to which the one set of practices enables the other. Human rights institutions have begun to pay attention to these and related issues, which means they're issuing reports, uh, but there does not appear to be a tribunal with jurisdiction to address them in an effective way. So I hope you're all really depressed now. Um, but but also I just want to wrap up and maybe interject some hope. So to, to, it's I think it's pretty bad to find the appropriate historical parallels to the way that information power is now mobilizing legal institutions. We should look to the early decades of industrialization, right, to the years of enclosure and population displacement and abusive labor practices that preceded the first kind of worker protection laws. Um, And we should look to the years in which the U.S. legal system first confronted the the dark underbelly of consumer capitalism, the defective mass-produced products and the slaughterhouses and the toxic chemical dumps. Uh, Both of those were eras in which rapid economic and technical transformation just ran roughshod over ordinary people uh, and in which existing legal institutions were caught unawares. They were almost wholly unprepared to meet the new challenges that confronted them, but they didn't stay that way. Um, I think, though, that it's become abundantly clear that solutions cannot be devised simply by looking backward to the legal forms that have served us well or well enough in the past. And we would do well to remember that those forms were themselves always only contingent compromises. We're witnessing the emergence of new legal legal institutions for the information age, but their form and substance are still up for grabs, and that calls for some creative thinking about what system of entitlements is sensible and fair, and about what legal institutions for the information age should look like. I think to counterbalance uh, information power effectively, though, we must be willing to interrogate the possible futures of a legal system that we have come to take for granted. Thank you for your patience. Thank you, uh, Julie, for your uh, tolerance and uh, a terrific lecture. And now uh, over to Anne Barron for her response. And we will, yes, if you would like to. We will go on to late 15.
to allow for some of the lost time. I'm told then there's a, a meeting of the Drama Society, which cannot be delayed. <laughs> so at that point, we will have a drink next door. Okay, thanks, Nick. Thanks, Julie, for a, an immensely rich lecture. I'm not even going to try to engage with um, all or even some of the many fascinating points of detail that were covered in what uh, we've just heard. There's far too much there to respond to in a few minutes. What I want to try and do is to bring to light some of the big ideas and orientations that I see underlying Professor Cohn's recent published work on, on the themes that she's been speaking about this evening. Um, in part, this is an effort to map some key features of the huge terrain that Julie covers in her work. Nick has already mentioned the extraordinary range of literatures that she draws on in her writing, and it's great, it's why it has such a wide appeal, but it places demands on the, readers, uh, on the reader, not least because many of the literatures that Julie Cohen draws on are oriented towards challenging the assumptions that sustain not only the discourse of information, law and policy, but liberal individualism in general, the prevailing common sense in so many parts of the world. So what I want to do is try to map those parts of her project that invoke anti-liberal or post-liberal ways of thinking because it's, to these, it's these invocations that draw both critical legal scholars and critical communication scholars uh, around the same table to discuss it. Um, and these critics have all kinds of religions, if you like, Foucauldians, Deleuzeans, Hart and Negrians, and old-fashioned Marxists, to name just a few, can see themselves somehow in Julie Cohen's work because of paragraphs that contain words like power, governmentality, surveillance, biopolitics, and the extraction of surplus value. This makes Cohen's work readable by people fluent in radical political theory and critical social theory, and it's because these theories are so widely invoked in media studies, in cultural studies, and in science and technology studies that her work resonates with people who occupy those terrains as well. Now, so I want to stress something that I don't think Julie stressed in her paper, but is emphasized in her published work, which is the degree to which she is challenging liberalism, the assumptions embedded in liberalism, and seeking to move beyond it, okay? Um, and that's what makes uh, her invocation of radical and critical theory so important, because moving beyond liberal individualism is the denominator which is common to all forms of radical and critical thought, whatever else might divide them. All of these theories, in other words, contest the core premises of modern liberal culture, which are that human beings just are, by nature, purpose of agents who are responsible for their actions, and that the putative sovereignty of these agents both found social relations and can be invoked as a criterion for evaluating them. Radical and critical theorists contest liberalism because they see it as obscuring the conditions under which individuals are produced as agents. Moreover, radical and critical theorists see this process of subject formation as one of choreographing individuals' actions in the world and their understandings of the world so that these articulate with the logics of the social formations in which subjects are positioned quite independently of their choice or their consciousness. 
Consequently, for these theorists, agency is a construction. It's an effect. But it is also constructed to be efficacious, albeit within limits. Subjects are molded to exercise their agency in particular ways while still experiencing themselves as agents, in charge of their actions, authors of their own view of the world. This experience of freedom, albeit a limited one, masks the structures of power that underpin the social formations in in which individuals are inserted. But also crucial to radical and critical theories is a preoccupation with resistance to power, or at least with its propensity to fail or undermine itself. Why and how this happens are matters of contention between adherents of the different radical and critical traditions, as also is the question of how truth figures here. But radicals and critics alike agree on the centrality to the exercise of power of resistance, failure, and contradiction. Now, I feel I read Julie Cohn's project as oriented towards mobilizing these radical and critical arguments to contest the particular form of liberalism, which is codified in the legal and technical arrangements that organize information flows through electronic networks today. Her central argument, as I read her, is that far from merely facilitating these flows neutrally, law and code configure them in particular ways. At the same time, law and code configure the human beings who are connected by these flows of information. To configure is to constitute, to design, to shape. So all of this is at odds with the liberal image of an individual who is sovereign over all he or she surveys, including her or his information. You would think that a liberal regime of information law would therefore regulate these processes of configuration, of shaping human beings, but actually it facilitates them. Cohen shows that concepts like authorship, notice, consent, freedom of speech, and freedom to innovate animate the copyright, uh, information privacy, and data protection regimes, these liberal notions that invoke the sovereignty of the individual. And yet far from enabling individuals to be sovereign, to control the movement of their information around the network, these regimes are implicated with the appropriation of that information and the engineering of both individuals and information flows in relation to the imperatives of a competitive market order. Now, I'm with Julie all the way when she makes these kinds of points, but she loses me a bit when I look for the structures of power stroke resistance that she identifies as underlying stroke destabilizing all of this. I think Professor Cohen equivocates on these issues. And this is problematic, not least because it makes it hard to address the what is to be done question that she posed at the end of her talk to jolt us out of our depression. For sure, she is urging us, her audience, to do something to resist the current situation. But to know what to do, we first need to know what we're up against as we observe the rise of information power. Are we just seeing corrigible failures of democracy and human rights in yet another arena of contemporary global policymaking? Or are we seeing a deeper logic at work here? And if we are, what is that? Is it capitalism? 
Is it governmentality? Is it biopolitics? Is it the consolidation of a society of control? If we could work out what the answer was, what logic it was, how would we contest it and why would we contest it? I'm going to conclude very briefly by offering two ways of reading Professor Cohen's take on these questions. One way of reading uh, Julie Cohen's account of power and resistance is as an account actually more informed by liberal theory than by radical or critical theory. This reading is made available, I think, by a number of tropes in her paper this evening. Her use of the term power as a shorthand for powerful actors, her suggestion that resistance consists in powerless ordinary people speaking truth to the powerful, her suggestion that what the powerless speak up for should be their vision of human flourishing, and her suggestion that what is needed to advance human flourishing are reworked legal institutions, new principles of legality, as she put, as she put it, um, that would uh, um, be applicable to the new regulatory uh, environment that we find ourselves in. All of this seems to invoke fundamentally liberal or liberal perfectionist ideas of participatory democracy and personal autonomy. And this, to me, is a disappointing reading because it suggests that Julie Cohen's project is less the promised move beyond liberalism than a move within liberalism. But there's another way of reading her account of power and resistance as precisely seeking to move beyond liberalism and to do so by hitching a Foucauldian analysis of how neoliberal governmentality operates in the networked environment to a Marxist critique of how capitalism operates in that environment. Although she's certainly too much of a liberal to be a card-carrying Foucauldian, there are many echoes of Foucault in what we heard this evening, that power is productive and not just prohibitive, that in its productive guise, it's oriented towards the comprehensive shaping, not only of individual lives, but the collective life of entire populations. That in the latter aspect, it is an apparatus of biopolitical regulation. And that liberalism, though it misrepresents and disguises this biopower, is actually the framework within which it operates. We especially see hints of Foucault in Cohen's accounts of the techniques, artifacts, and practices by which networked selves are configured. In her insistence on the materiality and pervasiveness of these techniques, artifacts, and practices, and in her explorations, which we saw this evening, of how in practice liberal law underpins these techniques, artifacts, and practices, even as its concepts seem antithetical to them. But spectres of Marx also appear between the lines of Julie Cohn's lecture this evening, although she's also too much of a liberal to be a card-carrying Marxist. We heard references to capitalism, albeit informational capitalism. So here Marx is channeled through Castells, I think. We heard that the control of information flows by globally organized private economic actors is bound up with domination and the appropriation of surplus value. We heard that states do not stand apart from these actors but systematically serve their interests and that state power has anyway become bypassed by structures of transnational governance 
that defy the public-private distinction and exceed the, the constraints imposed by the liberal ideal of the rule of law. And we heard an echo of Hart, Hart and Negri's own marriage of Foucault and autonomous Marxism in Professor Cohen's discussion of a biopolitical public domain. I'm going to stop in about one minute, Nick. The problem, I think, is that connections like these between, between such disparate thinkers and such disparate frameworks are difficult to make because they are actually incommensurable on some views. And I have to say that I don't think Professor Cohen connects these ways of thinking about power so much as juxtaposes them. The difficulties become evident, I think, when we look at the ways of thinking about resistance that are entailed by these radical and critical ways of thinking about power. For Foucault, resistance is everywhere. And like truth, it doesn't stand apart from power, but is integral to power's exercise. So it follows that Professor Cohn's positioning of resistance and truth as opposed to power and domination is absolutely not informed by Foucault. It may have been informed at some level by Marx, and yet it is neither Marxian nor Marxist. Uh, Professor Cohn clearly doesn't organize her thinking about power and resistance in terms of notions of capitalist power and working class resistance. And her vision of human flourishing is not, I think, linked, as Marx's was, to a vision of a future transformation to a communist society. Then again, theorists who proclaim themselves to be Marxists think resistance in incompatible ways as well. Castells is committed to a technological determinism that leaves no room for resistance at all while Hart and Negri see anti-capitalist resistance as everywhere, having spilled over into every corner of life as capitalist exploitation has become biopolitical. For them, then, resistance comes from a kind of universal class, all of us, the multitude. If one of these images of resistance fits Julie Cohn's work best, I think it's probably the latter. I think she's a Negrian. For Cohen, too, I think, resistance is enabled by the fact that the everyday life of ordinary people has its own rhythms that cross-cut and interrupt those drummed into us by law and by code. And that resistance is and should be carried on in the name of ending biopolitical exploitation. And yet Hart and Negri's theorization of resistance is unsatisfactory for all kinds of reasons, which I don't have time to go into, but perhaps somebody may want to in the question and answer session. So, to conclude, the equivocations that I see in Professor Cohen's work do bother me because the upshot is that although she makes demands of readers, it's not entirely clear what she's demanding of her readers. That said, it's crucial, I think, to bring together disparate thinkers when analysing social phenomena. And these days it is clearly unattractively sectarian to claim that one must swear allegiance to only one of the compelling frameworks that radical and critical theorists have bequeathed to us. If we're to understand a, com understand a complex world with multiple dynamics that are irreducible to each other, there simply is no alternative to complex <coughs> theoretical constructions. On the other hand, the more complex these constructions are, the more elements they include, then the more carefully woven the connections between the elements have to be if the whole edifice is to be durable. 
And so this is my concern, the inclusiveness of Professor Cohen's approach to this space where law and media intersect is truly wonderful, truly wonderful. But I just wonder whether all the elements she has included in her framework fit together so tightly that her framework can sustain all the arguments that she wants to make. Thank you. Um, thanks, Anne, for a very rich response. I'm sure Julie has a, a lot she could immediately say, but because of the interruption we had, I think we'll go into Q&A. We will end at 8.15, um, but we have 25 minutes almost, and so we have a question immediately right back there. <coughs> Hi there. Um, thank you for the talk. I just have one question for... or. Um, regarding the information flows and also the construction of information with code because I'm currently working on algorithms and what kind of discriminatory practices might be in there because I'm looking at um, credit card limitations. So there are some funny things going on with algorithms um, trying to assess whether or not your credit line should be lowered or not. And there are some discriminating practices going on there. So I wondered uh, if one of you have some thoughts on this, because it's kind of similar to former redlining practices in an analog world, where people try to like uh, bypass real discrimination laws by trying to find like other proxies for discrimination. And I'm interested, because I come from a sociology background, what a law perspective on that would be. Julie, do you want to? So um, we could talk for hours just about that, right? Um, it, it is important not to use the word discrimination loosely, right? The essence of commercial surveillance is discrimination, right? As a, as a matter of law, historically, certain kinds of discrimination have been regulated and prohibited. <coughs> And so, therefore, the others you're free to do, right? Um, and 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 so, at least two problems suggest themselves. Um, one of which is how do you detect the traditionally prohibited kinds? But then the other is what about that default condition that we are enshrining? Um, and so, you might want to think about both of those questions. Okay, uh, question there, Arista. Um, hi, I'm, uh, here we are. Hi, my name is Arista Fotopoulou. I'm from Lancaster University in sociology there. And thank you for your talk. Um, it seems to me that you've painted a very bleak uh, picture of um, how data alter the fabric of our social lives. And I'm particularly struck by this idea that we are alienated from the flows of how we produce uh, data. And I just wondered um, how you think about citizen science and also um, communities and cultures like the, like the quantified self, who, and also um, all these attempts to um, intervene from the bottom up uh, in terms of privacy of design, by design, for example. So how these communities are trying to intervene in how their data, how they collect their own data, but also how their data are being collected by, um, in, in the ways that, um, um, that interfaces are designed, for example. Does that make sense? So, yeah, yeah. You know, so, if um, that challenges the idea of alienation and if it's an... Um, it does. Yeah. Um, 
except that we haven't figured out how to make it stick, right? So, um, and it's interesting to, to contrast, for example, a Creative Commons type of solution, which is a thing, right? We figured out how to do that and to attach license terms um, to certain kinds of information that, in theory, have teeth and 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 work as a as a governance form. It's not at all clear that we've pulled that off in the realm of, of citizen science, right? Um, there, there, a lot of the early quantified self projects were exactly that way, and then um, what happened some of the time was that ventures needed venture capital, right? And you know, and we all know what happened next. And, so, and, and, and we have not created, I have not seen created a form, a, a governance form that would kind of prevent that from happening. And, 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 and indeed, certain of our intellectual property institutions actively seem to work against that by casting factual data into the public domain in this way. Um, so I would say that's a project. Um, uh, Sally, you had a question, and then two more. Hi, I'm Sally Broughton Mitsuva from LSE Media Policy Project and the department here, mm-hmm. um, Meeting Communications. Thank you to both of you. Those were fascinating. I wanted to push you, um, Professor Cohen, on defining and elaborating what is power, because mm-hmm. I was also struck by the use of power as yeah. an equivalent or uh, for institutions, agents, something, and the attribution of agency to power as an entity. So I would like to push you to elaborate what is it actually that is power that is doing all these things. And and if you could also say, has it changed since the Quakers were talking about it in their context in that original pamphlet? So I may... um I wrote down two things that Professor Barron said that I liked, but then I wrote down two caveats, um, one personal and one that's also institutional. Okay, so the things I liked, so I wrote down neoliberal information capitalism working through biopower and governmentality, which is basically uh, a way of saying, you guys in critical theory talk a good game about hybridity, but then you do tend to ask people to develop uh, pure uh, theoretical constructions to justify their existence, and I am not going to (laughs) play. I don't have to. Um, Personally, because I'm not a joiner, and institutionally, because I am a lawyer. And to be a lawyer is to be a pragmatist. pragmatist. Um, And it is not at all essential for this project that I answer that question. Um, And therefore, I'm not going to. But the second thing that I wrote down is that I kind of like the idea of being a Negrian. So, okay, Um, you know, to that extent, maybe yes. Okay. Thank you. Well, that's an implicit answer already to Anne. There we had three questions which I'll take together to try and speed it. There's one here, then the gentleman there, and then back there. We'll take those three together and see how we're doing on time at that point. Three together. Um, When you were talking on network hierarchies, and you were mentioning several different network hierarchies, but Mm -hmm. focusing, say, specifically on the regional network backbones and things like that, with the inherent hardware and protocol constraints in the network architecture, Mm -hmm. what do you see as ways of addressing the problems of the information flows going over these things? 
Okay, let's take the next two, and then we'll... Can you, can you just repeat, before you get rid of the mic, repeat the last half of what you just said? I was struck by something in the first half. Well, um, as given the hardware and protocol constraints uh-huh. of, uh, of, of the architecture of the networks, uh-huh. what do you see as ways to address uh, the problems of the information flows going over these things? Yeah, um, so, you know... We have to figure out a way to um, to implement transparency in a domain where things almost move too fast for us to be able to be transparent in the ways that government has always been accustomed to be. And, and there's a sense in which open government ideals are, are almost broken already and I mean aside from Snowden right so if you so there are certain kinds of government operations if you give a freedom of information act request you'll get you know five semi truckloads full of stuff and it's just hard to see how that gets you meaningful disclosure um, so so we're sort of drowning in our information there's a wonderful um, a surveillance studies and communication scholar named Mark Andreevich, who's written a book called Infoglet, um, which argues um, that we need to rethink all of the ways we've been accustomed to thinking about information because we have always thought of good information as being scarce, and now the problem is there's too much of it. This is a, a kind of a too much, it's a too fast, right? Um, and, um, you know, and, and so, so now is where I get to say, okay, I'm not a computer scientist. Scientist, I don't really know, right? But, I, but there has to be, um, I would hope, some um, some way of studying how you would audit what is happening and make it meaningfully reviewable. Um, and if you are a computer scientist, you should invent that. <laughs> okay. So, yes. Um, let's try and we have one here and then there was a woman there and I did you I thought, if there's time. okay all right let's just take these two names I, I don't know if there's a question or a comment maybe somewhere in between anyway so I was thinking of like um, how you uh, located yourself in terms of biopolitics mm-hmm. um, and it reminded me of how Foucault tries to think of the body as a way of thinking about politics mm-hmm. um, and it's true that informational capitalism is to a large extent operating through body uh, biopolitics. But isn't it also the tension that it is precisely the lack of a body politics which allows law to engage with mm. these kind of elusive corporations? So, I mean, how do we even think of some kind of emancipatory action when there is no body to engage with or to even uh, at- attack? That fascinating question. And then just take the next one. Thank you. Um, I've been spending some time looking at the Computer Misuse Act and the Computer Fraud and Abuse Act Mm -hmm. and um, the various reforms that are coming up, have come up recently. And in my readings, I found an interesting piece about potentially using public interest or including public interest in those two legal frameworks. Mm -hmm. And I'm wondering whether you think there's any scope in balance of powers and changes are in with that so okay so I'm going to go backwards um, the, so 
one or two legal scholars that I've seen have started to write about this interesting development where you where you see so-called public interest ombudsmen being appointed um, within agencies. And I actually know one of those people, um, so I, I want to emphasize I'm not saying bad things about them, but, but it's, it's just a sign of complete dysfunction, right? The, the regulatory structure is supposed to um, reflect in itself a coherent concept of the public interest. And so when you need to appoint a public interest ombudsman, you've kind of thrown in the towel, right? You've said, okay, we have just no idea how to do this, so we're going we're gonna, to you know, bring in somebody from the outside. Um, I don't think that's quite getting where we need to go. Um, personal opinion, right? The, the body thing is very interesting, right? It's not actually... It's, it's like a disembodied biopolitics, right? It's the biopolitics of the data double. Um, that is completely not acknowledged in the, in the discourse um, about that is constructing this, this biopolitical public domain. Um, and so people talk as though it is real, right? As though there is no distance between your data double and you. Um, and so I suppose... Um, that I think you're absolutely right that one of the things that would be beneficial to have happened is for for acknowledgement of the of that difference um, to to work its way into the discussions, um, it, you know, and and I suppose that gets us to the multitude, or it could, if we wanted it to. So yeah. Could I just mm-hmm. throw in a point here, which goes back to. Anne's question. I was interested the way that Anne tried to put you on the horns of a dilemma, whether you're either yeah. following liberalism or you're post-liberal, but the way I read your talk and what enabled you to say we need to be pragmatic is, mm-hmm. pragmatic is that very chillingly you're talking about a sort of licensed suspension of liberal norms that mm-hmm. goes under the guise of continuing liberalism and so has the perfect cover yeah. for its actions. Uh, it's the most brilliant conceit. And so whether it's liberal, post-liberal, we have to get that in view first and we have to be pragmatic about getting that in view. Ways of resistance will take a long time to evolve and clarify, I think, given that right. problem. And I did kind of pull a bait and switch to the extent that I came here and talked about something that's completely different from the book, right? But, but what, so, so the most recent thing in which I engaged that question directly, what I said was... Liberalism was always, you know, at its best is always only ever an aspiration, right? And I'm sure we're all good critics here, right? But some of those aspirations are not so bad, right? Um, Due process, non-discrimination, transparency, all these things that we can't ever quite get our way all the way to but are not bad things to strive for nonetheless. Um, And so I suppose then that may be a way, depending on your point of view, which I'm willfully holding myself in suspended animation between um, liberalism and critical theory, but I do think it's important to mention, right, that the the alternatives are, are... uh, some of the alternatives are, are not so good. Um, so, do you want yeah. to come back on that point? This is well, actually, <clears throat> I was I, I was going to mention three readings. So the mm-hmm. first one was she's just a liberal. The second was actually she's a radical who's trying to marry Foucault and, and Marx. 
And then I thought, well, actually, it's all of those things. You, you, you are... You're arguing for the absolute importance of retrieving the best of liberalism, but somehow advancing beyond that, superseding it, as Hegel would have said. You know, I mean, that's what that's what good dialecticians do. You know, mm -hmm. they don't reject the past, mm -hmm. trash it completely. They recognise that what's been achieved is an achievement. Liberalism is an achievement. Sure. It's just not enough. We have to move beyond it. But moving beyond it means taking from it what is best about it, but, but superseding that, making it into something that mm -hmm. overcomes its limitations. So, so that's the third reading, and I, I, I think that's the one I'm happiest with as well, and I hope you are. Okay. <laughs> right. We've just got time for one last question, and Bernard, you Okay, thank you. So. So an, another sort of way of going post-human um, is to go to kind of opposite direction and say, you know, be te technologically deterministic in a sense, like uh, like media determine the sort of situation that we're in. And in that light, um, you know, it seems... That, that, would you agree that we sort of have to start defining digitally what we mean by our values, like our normative values? And just sort of thinking through some of the points you've made, the idea that... You know what we need is transparency, um, but as you said before, and I don't mean this as a challenge. I mean I, I completely mm -hmm. agree with you. Um, transparency now I means something that has to be coded for, and it has to be coded in a way that humans can understand because the machines already move in fa faster than we can comprehend. And so that means rethinking what what did we ever mean by freedom, which is simply like an open future or a chance to second guess mm -hmm. our interlocutor, that sort mm -hmm. of contingency of social interaction. And, but that means in order to create that, we have to learn how to code it. So we sort of, it falls back into itself. So I, I, yeah. I'm a media determinist in the sort of Friedrich Hitler sense on this, but that, that's my view. And I wonder what you think about that. You know, I, there is much to that. But, 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 you know, but, but then... It's almost being framed as though we used to know what transparency was, and maybe I did this myself, and now digital technology is causing us to not know. But there have always been ways and ways of being transparent about things, and so I suppose, I suppose this is not so very different. Um, you know, and, and, and again, the law is pragmatic when it's honest, right? What it wants is good enough, not perfect. Um, and, and I think that we could do worse than, than, than take that lesson under advisement. So, We just have time for a quick comment from Robin Mansell, if we could get the mic to Robin. <clears throat> I enjoyed that tremendously. Um, my question is to do with institutions, and I think mm -hmm. you used the term path dependency at one point early on. Um, and I guess the question is, if we look for emergence of new institutions that might embed new values, etc., but every time you have an emergent institution, it coalesces into something which is captured, basically. Um, how do we progress? Where is the hope? I don't know if we do. I mean, that 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 is constant, right? Um, uh, but there have been periods during which we progressed more before the next thing happened <laughs> so so i suppose i'm 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 not too optimistic about that um, but but i but we we do we can point to historical moments 
you know, when, when we seemed to get ourselves to a place um, that represented a meaningful improvement over what had come before. And that's not such a bad thing. Thank you. Well, let's hope we're so, in one of those moments horrible, and it lasts a long yeah. time. So that's a good point to end. Let's, uh, we will move straight to drinks outside. Please join us there to continue the discussion. But let's thank Anne Barron for a great response and Julie Kyle for a terrific lecture. Thank you.